Section 9 of On the Witness Stand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Michelle Kinge, Surrey, United Kingdom. On the Witness Stand. Essays on Psychology and Crime by Hugo Munsterberg, The Traces of Emotions, Part 1. If a girl blushes when a boy's name is mentioned in the family sitting room, we feel sure, even if she protests, that he is not quite indifferent to her young heart. If she opens a letter and grows pale while reading it, she may assure us that the event is unimportant we know better. If she talks with you, and every word makes you believe that her entire interest belongs to you and your remarks, it is enough for you to see that her fingers are playing nervously with her fan, and that her breathing has become deep and vehement, and her eyes restless, since a certain guest has entered the room. You know she is hardly listening to you, and waits only for him to approach her. And if he does not come, she may be masterful in simulation, and the artificial smile may never leave the lips. Yet you will hear her disappointment in the timbre of her voice. You may see it even in the width of the pupil of her eye. Yes, the hidden feeling betrays itself often, against the will of the best comedian in life. It may be easy to suppress, intentionally, the conspicuous movements by which we usually accentuate the emotions. It is not necessary to become wild with anger and to collapse in sorrow. We may even inhibit laughter and tears, and a New Englander will never behave like a southern Italian. But the lips and hands and arms and legs, which are under our control, are never the only witnesses to the drama which goes on inside. If they keep silent, others will speak. The poets know it well. Through the dramatic literature of all ages is repeated the motive of the unintentional expression of emotions. The ghastly memory of a gruesome past seems locked up in the hero's mind, and yet, when he is brought back to the place of his deed, it comes to light in his paleness and trembling, in the empty glaring of his eyes and the breaking of his voice. There is hardly a tragedy of Shakespeare in which the involuntary signs of secret excitement do not play their role and the comedies of all time vary the same motive with regard to the lighter sins of love and social entanglement. The helpless stammering of the excited lover betrays everything which his deliberate words are to deny. But the signs which made Hamlet sure that his mother had committed murder have not been overlooked by those who are on the track of the criminal in our practical life. The suspected man who pales before the victim while he pretends not to know him, or who weeps at hearing the story 
of the crimes which he disavows is half condemned in the eyes of the prosecutor. When the conspiracy against Dreyfus sought to manufacture evidence against him, they made much of the fact that he trembled and was thus hardly able to write when they dictated to him a letter in which phrases of the discovered treasonable manuscript occurred. Much of that which the police and the delinquents called the third degree consists of these bodily signs of a guilty conscience, to make the accused break down from his own inner emotion is the triumph of such maladministration of law. It seems that even some of the superstitions of barbaric times, which claim to discover the guilty by all kinds of miracles, sometimes contained a certain truth of this kind. They depended on apparently mysterious signs, which in reality sometimes belonged to the bodily effects of emotion. Evidently, primitive life sharpens the observation of such symptoms. One of the most adventurous gunmen of the West told me that when he was attacked by mobs, he behaved as if he were constantly spitting. He went through such motions because it always discourages the crowd when they see their adversary does not fear them and they would know that a man who is afraid cannot spit. The emotion of fear dries up the mouth and throat. Of course, everyone knows how uncertain and unsafe such crude police methods must be. There cannot be justice if we base our judgment on the detective's claim that a man blushed or trembled or was breathing heavily. It would hardly be better than those superstitious decisions of early times. There are too many who believe that they see what they expect to see, and very different emotions may express themselves with very similar symptoms. The door is open for every arbitrariness if such superficial observations were to count seriously for acquittal or for conviction. But that provokes the natural question. Cannot science help us out? Cannot science determine with exactitude and safety that which is vague in the mere chance judgment of police officers? More than that, cannot science make visible that which is too faint and weak to be noticed by the ordinary observer? The bystander watches the expressions of the strong, overwhelming emotions. But can science, can experimental psychology, not bring to light the traces of the whole interplay of feelings, the light and passing ones, as well as the strong and the most hidden suggestions of consciousness, as well as heavy emotional storms? The question is indeed pressing, as the idea of the psychological expert in court cannot be withdrawn from public discussion. The mental life, perception and memory, attention and thought, feeling and will, 
plays too important a role in court procedure to reject the advice of those who devote their work to the study of these functions. And especially the progress of modern psychology has been too rapid in recent years to ignore it still with that condescension which was in order at the time when psychologists indulged in speculation and psychological laboratories were unknown. Today, the psychologist operates with the methods of exact science, and the method which is here demanded seems entirely in harmony with his endeavours. The problem is whether he can record objectively the passing symptoms and whether he can get hold of expressions too faint to be perceptible to our senses. But just that the laboratory psychologist is aiming at constantly and successfully. Whether he measures the time of mental acts or analyzes the complex ideas, whether he studies the senses or the volitions, he is always engaged in connecting the vague inner impression with an outer measurable fact which can be recorded, and in throwing full light on that which escapes notice in ordinary life. In the region of feelings and emotions, the experimental methods of psychology have been certainly not less successful than in other fields of inner life. To confine ourselves to that special problem which interested us from the point of view of law, the psychologist can indeed register the symptoms of inner excitement and, more than that, can show the effects of feelings and emotions of which the mere practical observation does not give us any trace. Yet, even the subtlest detective work of the psychological instruments refers only to the same bodily functions which make us visibly blush in shame, pale and tremble in fear, shiver in horror, weep in grief, perspire in anxiety, dance in joy, grow hot and clench the fist in anger. Everywhere the blood vessels contract or dilate, the heartbeat changes, the glands increase or decrease their activity. The muscles work irregularly, but the instruments allow us to become aware of almost microscopic changes. We may, perhaps, point to a variety of lines along which such inquiry may move. To begin with a very simple group of processes, we may start with our ordinary movements of the arm. Does feeling influence them? I can give my reply from a little diary of mine. I kept it years ago. It was not the regulation diary. There was no sentimentality in it, but mostly figures. Its purpose was to record the results of about 20 experiments, which took about half an hour's time. I had the material for these little experiments always in my pocket, 
and repeated them three or four times a day throughout several months. I fell to experimenting whenever daily life brought me into a characteristic mental state, such as emotion or interest or fatigue or anything important to the psychologist. One of these 20 experiments was the following. I attached to the bottom of my waistcoat a small instrument which allowed me to slide along an edge between thumb and forefinger of the right hand, both outwards and inwards. Now, I had trained myself to measure off in this way from memory distances of four and eight inches. Under normal conditions, my hand passed through these distances with exactitude while the eyes were closed. The apparatus registered carefully whether I made the distance too long or too short. The results of many hundreds of these measurements went into my diary together with a description of the mood in which I was. When I came to figure up the results after half a year's records, I found a definite relation between my feelings and my arm movements. My diary indicated essentially three fundamental pairs of feeling in the course of time. There was pleasure and displeasure. There was excitement and depression. And there was gravity and hilarity. The figures showed that in the state of excitement, both the outward and inward movements became too long. And in the state of depression, both became too short. In the state of pleasure, the outward movements became too long, the inward movements too short. In the state of displeasure, the opposite, the outward movements too short and the inward movements too long. In the case of gravity or hilarity, no constant change in the length of the movement resulted, but the rhythm and rapidity of the action was influenced by them. Here were, for the first time, three distinct sets of feelings separated and recognised through three distinct ways of bodily behaviour. After the publication of my figures, others came from other starting points to such division of our feelings into three groups, while some believe that there are only two sets. Still, others hold, and I should not disagree, that pleasure and displeasure alone are the fundamental feelings, that a colour or sound is agreeable, seems primary, that is exciting or soothing, is secondary. On the other hand, the number of those secondary feelings seems to me today still larger than it did at that time. I am inclined to accept many more simple feelings and find for everyone characteristic expressions of movement. All this becomes important 
as soon as the psychologist begins to explain the feelings and asks how far the sensations themselves enter as parts into the feelings. But what concerns us here is the fact that the pleasurable and the unpleasurable mood betray themselves in opposite movement, impulses of which we are unaware. I had meant in those hundreds of cases to make exactly the same outward and inward movements, and yet the experiments disclosed the illusion. Of course, we all know how in joy the outward movements are reinforced. The boy swings his cap and the whole body stretches itself, while in anger the opposite impulses prevail. The contraction of the fist becomes typical. The experiments show that these various impulses are at work when we do not know and do not show it. We must bring the man before a registering apparatus to find out from his motions, without his knowledge, whether sunshine or general cloudiness prevails in his mind. End of section 9